Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent with my co-host Sean Cheatham, and we have Brother Andrew Warwick, who's part of the team, here to uh, discuss some very important issues. Um, but before we dive into that, uh, you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. You can also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to support our ministry um, to help us to uh, offset some of our costs and to continue to bring the high quality uh, material that we do, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash the particular Baptist. And with that, we'll go ahead and dive right into our topic today. We are going to be handling a pretty big topic, but a, nonetheless a very important topic, uh, the topic of limited atonement in light of Austin Brown's uh, book that came out re uh, recently, um, which has to, he, he claims is a reform response to uh, the Doctrine of Limited Atonement. So he tries to come at this from a reform perspective um, and speak against the, the Doctrine of Limited Atonement. So we're going to be addressing um, some points from his book. Uh, we want to start off with a positive presentation of Limited Atonement. Um, so Andrew's going to start off with a positive presentation, and, and uh, Sean, you can jump in whenever you like to, and I'll be uh, coming at it from a, di from a different perspective as well, so we can kind of cover all these main points. And then we'll interact with the book uh, more directly in some points that I think are uh, important to discuss. Um, in terms of the quotes that I'll be using, um, and Sean, I think we'll have a quote as well from the book. These are from the Kindle edition of the book. Um, uh, and Andrew, can you remind me of the the title again? The, a boisterous response to yeah, a boisterously reform polemic against yeah. limited atonement. Okay, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be using the Kindle edition of that book, um, Sean and I, when we do our quotes from it. Um, but we'll go ahead and, and dive right into our discussion. So, Andrew, take it away. Give us a positive Absolutely. presentation of limited atonement. And, and, and to preface that, too, I'd just like to say that I'm uh, as much as I strongly disagree with Austin in his book, I am thankful that he's pressing us to think about these things more. Because I do think there's been a lot of confusion about exactly what do we mean about by limited atonement. So hopefully that will kind of be a gateway into clarifying these things up a bit. So for presenting the doctrine rightly, I want to start with our confession, the 1689. Uh, so particularly the uh, I want us to get into the confessional and biblical distinction between redemption or reconciliation and justification and the inseparable nature of the two. Because I think in our minds, those things just kind of go hand in hand together and we don't make clear distinctions between them. But there is a distinction in the confession and in the Bible between uh, redemption and justification uh, or else reconciliation, which I think is just two sides of the same coin with redemption. Anyways, so I want to start us off with paragraph six of chapter three of the 1689. If you have that, uh, it says the following. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory. So he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ, by his spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ 
or effectually called justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. So notice that you have redemption and justification both mentioned in this passage here. Uh, and one of them, namely redemption, is listed before the effectual calling, whereas justification is listed after. However, both are exclusive to the elect. As it says, neither are any other redeemed by Christ or justified than the elect alone. So both of these are exclusive to the elect. There's no other uh, redeemed or justified by Christ except for them. As for what these two things are, the nature of justification is made clear because there's a whole chapter dedicated to that. It's the moment that the Spirit of God applies Christ to the elect through the instrumentality of faith. So that is when we become personally justified, forensically justified, and right with God in time when we receive Christ by faith. Uh, you can see Romans 5.1 as an illustration of that as well. Um, redemption, however... Uh, doesn't have a whole chapter dedicated to it, uh, but what's meant by it becomes clear in the confession, and it's hinted at here because unlike justification, redemption is listed as occurring before the effectual call. So you have redemption, then the effectual call, then justification. So it's something that occurs before we even hear the gospel. And this isn't a one-off thing, this, this listing. The exact same chain of redemption, calling, justification, and sanctification, and glorification uh, is also found in paragraph one of chapter eight of our confession as well. So the precise same order. This isn't a random scattering of things in the order of salutis. This was very intentional, the order that they gave here. Um, Anyway, so it, it's meant to si uh, signify uh, that redemption is the piece of that chain that occurs before our personal reception of the gospel. To put it another way, it's part of the objective historia salutis rather than our subjective experience of the order salutis, which begins with the effectual calling. Uh, so when the confession speaks of redemption, it's not referring to our personal deliverance from sin and time, uh, our personal receiving of Christ by faith, but rather redemption. The, it, it, the paying of the ransom, uh, it, it's referring to the redemption that's accomplished by the incarnate Christ at Calvary around 30 or 33 AD. Hence, the proof text given here for redemption in the confession at, at chapter uh, uh, 3 here is 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, which I'm not going to read here, but it speaks of Christ's death in time. So the Historia Salutis and its inseparable connection to our life. Uh, to further clarify the intent of the confession, we can look at paragraph 8 of chapter 8, which reads, quote, to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to him, to them in and by his word, the mystery of salvation persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and covering all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, overcoming all their enemies, uh, in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation, and all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. So very clearly, uh, redemption is distinct from, and in fact, the basis of all its applications in time. And our being persuaded to believe is actually said to be an effect of that eternal redemption that Christ gave, which we already read in chapter 3 was given only for the elect. Only the elect have an interest in his redemption. 
so redemption is none other than Christ's atonement, his paying a price for his people and conquering uh, the grave for them. And as the confession says, it's to uh, to all whom he makes this atonement, he, he certainly and effectually applies its benefits. In other words, the atonement is limited to his elect. It's not universal in any sort of hypothetical sense where it's just applied to a certain people. The redemption itself is limited and only for the elect. Uh, this is the confessional position for those of us who call ourselves particular Baptists, which uh, means we hold to particular redemption. And the same places prove the, the doctrine in the Westminster as well. So if one claims to be reformed and not to embrace it, he at the very least falls outside of the stream of reformedum of confessional Baptists and Presbyterians, uh, according to our standards. So that's what we mean when we speak of limited atonement. It's that Christ died only for the elect at the cross. But I want to show that this doctrine isn't something that the framers made up. The distinction and inseparable nature of redemption and justification is also biblical. We find it expressly taught in Romans chapter 5, uh, which, while using the word reconciliation instead of redemption, it's nevertheless referring to the same thing or, as I said, two sides of the same coin. Those are both things that are accomplished historia uh, salutis. So starting with verse 5 of chapter 5, Paul says, quote, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So I want to pause here real quick. Uh, I started in verse 5 to provide the fuller context of this passage, which is that we have hope that does not make us ashamed, but rather fills us with great confidence before God, the love of God, which God's Spirit reveals to us. What is the love that gives us hope? Verse 6 answers this and provides the ground for our hope. It says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. This is the anchor that Paul gives us for our soul, Christ's death for us, historically in time, 30, 33 AD, which he did even when we were still without strength. But focuses on the event in history, which occurred in due time, as he says. Uh, which, again, is Historia Salutis language. It's similar to what we see in Galatians chapter 4, for example, when it says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. This historical event, which occurred apart from us and our reception of it, is the grounds for our hope. So continuing on in verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here Paul's hammering home the, po the point. Not only when were we without strength when Christ died for us, we were also sinners and hostile to God. We are the ungodly whom Christ died for in verse 6. Keep in mind that Paul and much of the Romans he's writing to would have been alive and unsaved when Christ died. And the point is that Christ did this for them back then in spite of the fact that they were still sinners. They were still ungodly. They were still dead in their sins. So even though they were sinners around 30 AD, Christ nevertheless died for them then in due time. Verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Here he moves into justification, which verse 1 makes clear occurs when we personally receive Christ by faith, as I already alluded to. Back then he died for us, and today, having received him, we are now presently justified by his blood. The sense is that if God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us while we were yet sinners and unconverted, 
how much more can we who have now received him and his work for us by faith be confident that we will be spared condemnation? Continuing in verse 10, he says, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So what was said so far, the, the grounding of our sure and steadfast hope in the Historia Salutis, in Christ's death for us, even before we had received him, I think that in itself would have been a good argument uh, that it's peculiar to the elect alone, since that's the anchor for our soul. But this verse, verse 10, is absolutely key. To me, it, it just it makes it uh, true without a shadow of a doubt. It returns to the context of that moment in history when we were enemies. Uh, paralleling the earlier language of when we were yet sinners without strength in the ungodly. And it says that at that moment, at the moment of the death of his son at Calvary, we were reconciled to God in the death of his son. There was an objective historical reconciliation of God's people when Christ died on the cross. But was it for everybody? No, Paul goes further. Not only is there a sense where we were reconciled at the cross, he says that if we were reconciled back then, we shall much more be saved by his life. Thus, much like in Romans 8, we have something of a golden chain here as well. If you are reconciled, you will be justified. And if you are justified, you will be saved, which is to say glorified. Thus, if one never becomes justified and thus never glorified, it necessarily follows from Paul's argument here that they were never reconciled either, because if they had been reconciled at the cross, they would have much more been saved by his life. Thus, there's a sense that the atonement itself, Christ's death for sinners, and not just its later application of those who believe, is limited. It's limited because the non-elect were not reconciled to God at Calvary, whereas the elect were, even before they would be justified by faith in time. Rather, their justification is the result and necessary effect of what Christ already accomplished for his people. He has carried our sins to the cross and abolished the grounds for the enmity that existed between us, presented his work to the Father on our behalf, who then receives his work and with the Son sends his spirit to those for whom the Son intercedes, which spirit applies Christ to us and causes us to pass from death to life, making us personally right with God through faith. So there's your biblical defense for limited atonement and what exactly we mean by it. But I think what we also need to consider after having established that is to uh, consider the common paraphrase of the Lombardian formula, which Austin makes uh, much reference to in his book. Uh, namely, that Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. Uh, so that's a paraphrased form of it. But uh, the question we have to ask ourselves is, should we embrace this? And uh, if so, to what extent is Christ's death sufficient and efficient, uh, having established that his reconciliation, his redemption was for the elect alone? Well, I think we need to be careful how we use the, uh, the phrase sufficient for all but efficient for the elect uh, and make it clear what we mean. But there is an important truth to it if we appropriate it properly. Christ's death is absolutely sufficient for all, and we really need to clarify what we mean here when we're saying it's limited. It's not because there's anything limited about the value of Christ's death. Christ's death is absolutely sufficient for all, not only everyone who has existed, but an infinite number of worlds and everyone who ever could exist. In the sense that his sacrifice is of infinite worth and that no further whips, torments, or anything else would have been needed, 
had God chosen to lay the sins of more people upon him, it's sufficient for all. As far as I'm concerned, to say that the death of Christ as presently recorded in Scripture wouldn't have been good enough if God had decreed to elect more individuals is nothing short of blasphemy. And it undermines the infinite merit of that sacrifice and the God who was slain there. Further, there is a singular curse that is upon all humanity for breaking the covenant of works, the nature of which curse is described in the scriptures and is fulfilled in substance by the death of Christ on the tree. As scripture says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Galatians 3.13. Notice that curse there is singular. There's a singular curse upon all, uh, and he delivered us from the curse, not curses, because there is one curse upon all the elect, and indeed also upon all of humanity. Thus, when Christ became a curse for us, his becoming a curse has a theoretical sufficiency for all of mankind who have the same, the very same curse hanging up over them. So the intrinsic value of the death of Christ has a theoretical sufficiency for everyone who ever has lived or could live. However, when we speak of this sufficiency, we are restricting it to, as I said, the inherent worth of Christ's death. But when we consider the atonement as a whole and its satisfaction of justice, we must remember that it encompasses more than simply the penalty, but also what the penalty is paying for. So it's more than the, the price of it, but also what's being purchased. That also has to be considered when we speak of the atonement. For example, in the realm of civil justice, it's common that the penalty for murder is death. Whether someone killed one person, two people, 50 people, the penalty is still death. So the penalty is the same no matter how many crimes justice is trying this person for. Thus, the death penalty for murderer A would be hypothetically sufficient if the crimes of murderers B and C were somehow transferred to him. So you had that hypothetical sufficiency in the inherent worth of the death penalty. Uh, but as it stands, the execution of murderer A does not encompass the crimes of murderers B and C. So even though it was hypothetically sufficient, murderer A did in no sense die for them. And so when we speak of the execution of murderer A, we recognize that more is involved than simply the potential value of the death in and of itself. So too, when we speak of Christ's atonement, more is involved than simply the potential value of Christ's death. It also encompasses what crimes were laid to as an account. Why was he being forsaken by God? What sins were being laid upon him? That is the question, because that's part of the atonement. It should be clear from our discussion about reconciliation that the crimes that were laid to Christ's account, the crimes that God was reconciled for, were the sins of the elect alone, and that he did not bear the sins of the non-elect or reconcile God to them. He laid down his life for his sheep, and as John 10 teaches us, those who don't hear him are only those who aren't his sheep, whom he therefore did not lay his life down for. Christ is the great high priest of spiritual Israel, and just like the high priest of the Old Testament, he does not bear the names of every single person when he goes to make the atonement, but only the names of Israel those for whom he had covenanted to save from before the foundation of the world, choosing them in him. And I think, Dan, you're going to get more on, on that point in, in your section. But to wrap up uh, my little bit here, uh, all that being said, when we speak of the sufficiency for all and efficiency only for the elect, we should be clear that we are speaking only of the intrinsic value of Christ's death. Strictly speaking, it's not proper to say that the atonement 
with everything involved in that is sufficient for all because the atonement also includes the sins being atoned for and he was not making an atonement for the sins of the non-elect nevertheless the language can be helpful if we qualify it as being about the intrinsic value because it reinforces the fact that when we say the atonement is limited it's not anything blasphemous it's not because there's anything deficient about the death of christ itself but it's only because the father did not lay the sins of the non-elect on him no more suffering would have been necessary to reconcile worlds over of people because his death is of infinite and unlimited value thanks andrew um it and one thing i think that will bring out in this discussion I, that goes to andrew's point about what constitutes as true satisfaction is the doctrine of imputation which will go hand in hand you can't really transfer the crimes of somebody else in in uh, a human court because you can't really impute those sins to someone else's account you can only do so kind of indirectly but not in a real sense like we had to with christ and i you'll see this theme i think come up again and again through our discussion uh, that imputation will play a crucial role in how we handle um, our discussion of what the atonement really encompasses and the importance of that to the specific recipients of the atonement and the scope of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's going to be a big issue later because you do have to ultimately undermine the nature of imputation in order to uh, have a kind of hypothetical universalism. And we're going to see that as we, we go through the book. There, But there's something entirely unique about the imputation of Christ, of the sins of Christ's people upon himself. There's something entirely unique about the union between Christ and the church, where we become bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. Um, and so any comparison to an indirect imputation in a human court of justice just will not do, and it's a devaluing of what it really is. But I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. <laughs> no. I'll let you continue on. Yeah, no worries. Um, just for information, Austin, who's the author of the book, actually commented, I think he's listening, um so awesome we hope you can listen to this any feedback is appreciated um so we appreciate you tuning in um and maybe we can uh, we might be able to set up a conversation i'm not going to make any uh, commitments but that might be something we can do down the road uh, but thanks for joining us today all right yeah. so kind of yeah go ahead sean i was gonna say he says that he's at work so he'll have to finish later today so i think he listened to the initial part but uh, i don't think he's around anymore okay <laughs> but he'll eventually hear this yep all right, so I'm going to take this from a little bit different perspective, um, not contradicting Andrew in any way, just coming at it from a different um, aspect, kind of, uh, you know, completing the entire discussion here, I guess, surrounding uh, the scope of the atonement. So I'm going to come at this from a covenant theology perspective. I think this is absolutely crucial in our discussion about this, um, because we as Reformed people believe, it, and there's going to be variances with regards to covenant theology, but at the very least, uh, Presbyterian, uh, Reformed Baptists believe that God interacts with people in history by means of covenant. Uh, we're not dispensationalists. We don't believe God has worked with uh, the people of Israel in one sense and then uh, the church in another sense. There's a consistent covenant theology from the creation of, uh, from uh, the garden with the covenant works all the way up until now with redemption. Um, so, when we're talking about redemptive history, covenant theology is clearly important because God is dealing with certain groups of people in certain ways. Um, so I think going to the book of Hebrews is going to be helpful here because the scope of the atonement is tied directly to a particular covenant and the purpose of the atonement and uh, the typology that's involved there as it relates to 
um, as it relates to Christ's uh, work as a mediator and high priest. So I want to touch on that. So um, this is going to be pretty exegetical heavy, but um, I think it'll be helpful. So we're going to jump into starting in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 8b through 9. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, if you read that on its face, it could seem like that Jesus is, you know, giving some kind of universal atonement without exception because of the word everyone. Everybody's included. It doesn't matter. Okay, so contextually speaking, the author is continuing his discussion of the God-man. Chapter one, he's laying out that Christ is, is fully God. He created the world. God created the world through him. He was there with the Father, um, and he is the Son of God, um, and that Christ is God. And he, he uses this partitive discussion, talking to things relating to Christ's human nature and relating to Christ's divine nature. And now he's in chapter two, he's applying those principles to redemption. He's now getting into more covenantal language. And what is Jesus doing as it relates to him coming to earth and dealing with sin? Um, so we see uh, moving on here in, in chapter two, uh, the writer does clarify what is meant by everyone. Later on down in the chapter in verses 11 and 12, we see uh, the discussion around brothers distinguishing those uh, who are from the generic human race, okay? These are the many sons to glory that's found in verse 10. So you're seeing the language starting to become more specific as the discussion goes on, tied to the death that Christ has uh, given in terms of uh, for everyone. Um, and then this is tied directly to the children that is laid out in verses 13 and 14. It says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So these people that Jesus is suffering for, that Jesus is uh, be, you know, suffering for and partaking of these same things, these are the brothers that are mentioned in verse 12. So the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ is being tied to a specific group of people, not everybody without exception, to a specific group of people. Um, and then verse 16 is, is very important. It says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Um, this is key because, um, as we're going to see in Romans chapter 4, this, the spiritual offspring of Abraham are those who believe by faith, right? So he's tying it uh, to those people. And there's this connecting word here as well in verse 16, uh, this word for that shows that this principle is tied directly to what came before. In other words, why did he take death for these children that he's mentioned already? Because he helps the children of Abraham and not angels. So Christ partook of the same things his children did and destroyed the power of death for them, delivering them from slavery. And then verse 16 is really a summary of what was just described in verses 14 and 15, namely that Jesus is helping the children of Abraham. So there's a very specific group of people that's being addressed here. And who are the children of Abraham? These are those who believe by faith in Christ. If we jump back to Romans chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, it says, How then was it counted to him? Was it there? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, 
But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul's point here is he's wanting to bring out that Abraham was not uh, believing because of his circumcision. There were no works involved in his faith. This was a pure gift of God. It was not earned by him. It was something uh, that came outside of any works of the law. So it was important to demonstrate that his faith came before he was circumcised. But it wasn't just for the Jews' benefit. It was also for anybody, Jew or Gentile, that believes they are also the, the children of Abraham, spiritually speaking, um, because of the faith that Abraham had outside of circumcision. Because remember, circumcision is what distinguishes the covenant people of God from everybody else under the old covenant, under the Abrahamic covenant and under the old covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant. You have this distinguishing mark of circumcision. So circumcision doesn't matter as it relates to faith or salvation. Faith is what matters, and that is what makes you a true spiritual child of Abraham. So that's what uh, Paul is bringing out here. So jumping back to Hebrews, when we're talking about um, God is helping only, you know, the offspring of Abraham or the children of Abraham, he's helping those who believe by faith, since clearly this is a spiritual aspect that's being brought out here. This is not a, um, not an ethnic aspect or any kind of, uh, you know, nation aspect as it relates to circumcision. This is a spiritual identification that's being brought out here. And we have Paul laying out very clearly in Romans chapter 4. So the writer of Hebrews has laid out what the death of Christ applies to. This applies to the children of Abraham. He's going to expound upon this more as we go into chapter 8. Okay, so now we're getting more specifically into covenant theology. So we, we look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So this is right on the heels of the Melchizedek priesthood being laid out in chapter 7. Christ is, is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is what it means for his high priestly role. He mediates for the new covenant. He's the federal head of that covenant, meaning he represents that covenant people uh, before God. And if someone is united to that federal head, the benefits of that federal head are given to those people. Um, and it works the other way, too. We see with with uh, Adam, you know, if you go back to Romans chapter five, where uh, Andrew was later on in that chapter, you'll see um, what it means to be an Adam. It brings death and you're condemned. Right. But if you're in Christ, you're alive. You're made alive. I also see this principle in First Corinthians 15. So if you are united to a federal head, the benefits or the curses, whichever one um, that uh, that federal head is procured, they will be given to that covenant people. 
So the question then becomes, who are the who are the people that this covenant is about? And and how does that, you know, how is that tied to the to the mediator or the federal head of that covenant? And what was the role of the priest? Right. The role of the priest was to represent the covenant community before God as it relates to worship. He didn't represent pagan nations. He didn't represent the Amalekites or the Canaanites. He didn't represent any of those pagan nations. He only represented the covenant people of Israel, a specific people, God's chosen people. So in a similar way, Christ is representing only those who are members of that new covenant, whoever they might be. He's only representing them. It's not a universal um, application in terms of who he's representing. And we can say this because the old covenant priesthood is merely a type or a shadow of Christ's priestly ministry. And we can see this in chapter 8 because Christ is mediating a better covenant federally and priestly. And the earthly temple was a copy of the reality in heaven where Jesus is ministering now and where he ministered by his own blood. And then as you read later on in the chapter, you look in verse 11, it says that the new covenant is for those who know the Lord, those who have the law of God written on their hearts okay and this would obviously be for those who are saved and that means that jesus is interceding and is mediating only for that particular people okay that's very very important to understand and obviously we're going to differ with our presbyterian brethren on the scope of the new covenant um, but i think it's pretty clear from the passage um, that we can see that this is only for those to whom the law of god has been written on their hearts and they know the lord this is not for anyone outside of that group then you jump ahead to chapter 9, um, chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. But then Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Jesus's role as high priest is going into those holy places that were represented by types and shadows and copies in the old covenant. He's going into the heavenly places by his own blood as the high priest and uh, only entering by means of his own blood, but doing so in a mediatory role representing those uh, covenant people. Jesus's blood took care of of those things for the covenant community whom he represents doing so on behalf of those who are called. And you can see that very clearly here in uh, Hebrews chapter 9. And given that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, he is the federal head or representative of the new covenant for his people, this better covenant. And then those who are united to Christ covenantally by faith receive those benefits which are due theirs by virtue of the work of the covenant head that is Christ. You can see similar language to this in 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31, where he has become for us sanctification, redemption, righteousness, etc. But that is in Jesus Christ. It's in union with him, covenantally speaking. And you can see this language very clearly here, uh, like at the end of, of this passage section that I read, so that those who are called may receive 
the promise eternal inheritance. He's meeting this new covenant for the purpose of a particular people, only those who are called and only those uh, that he redeems because of the blood that he spilt. And jumping, uh, jumping ahead again to chapter 10, uh, this is verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, so Jesus' work as high priest took care of sin of those whom he covenantally represents. And you can see even parallel language in here from chapter 9. Back in chapter 9, it says that the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh. So it sanctified the covenant people who were under the old covenant. And then he makes the parallel in chapter 10 that through his single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So it's the same covenantal language being used here, this time for those whom he mediates, which is the members of the new covenant, um, in parallel with what we see happening in the old covenant. The blood of bulls and goats, um, they sanctify the flesh, and so how much more the blood of Christ sanctifying uh, is going to sanctify our consciences. And then right after verse 14, which I quoted above, um, the writer of Hebrews quotes part of chapter 8. Or goes back to Jeremiah 31. So starting at verse 15, it says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the writer of Hebrews is just confirming it in saying that this uh, offering that was perfected those for all time who are being sanctified it applies to the covenant people and he's quoting scripture he's saying the holy spirit bears witness to this i don't take my word for it go back to the scriptures it says this too and he uh he applies the covenantal community to this very principle he ties it to that this single offering is tied only uh to the covenant people so that's kind of an overview, I, I think, of the, the covenantal argument that I think is vital to this because the atonement is specifically tied to a group of covenantal people and I think presents us with kind of that overall redemptive framework that we see um, in the scriptures. I don't know if you guys have anything you want to add to that. Yeah, uh, I'll just say that the way I think about it, um, the Old Testament system, right, is is a prototype. It's a, a type of... Um, the the new uh covenant uh system not that not in every single spot but it is pointing forward to it right and in the old covenant system you have the high priest making the sacrifices for the people of god for for israel right um and it's only for israel it's not it's not for anyone else in fact the high priest comes in with the name of the 12 tribes on his chest because it's for them no one would ever say that it's for anybody else the New Testament parallel is it's exactly the same. Christ bears the sins of his people as high priest. He has the people of God, the true Israel, uh, upon him. Uh, so there's, you've got that parallel there in um, in the atonement, in the uh, covenant system. Yep. He's not bearing the, the sins of the people over in Egypt there when the high priest centers into the tabernacle. Yep. The, the other thing I wanted to add to is, so 
like you said, Dan, all this is a provision of Christ's mediatorial uh, representation for us. It's because of his, uh, him being our covenantal head that we receive all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. One such spiritual blessing that the scripture uh, lets us know about is faith itself, right? Philippians, for example, tells us that it's given to you on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. So to make this separation between faith and what Christ gives you as the high priest representing the, the uh, sacrifice before the Father, uh, there's no room for that because your faith is actually a provision uh, that he gives because of his high priestly work on our behalf there. So you kind of get this weird situation with hypothetical universalists. It's like, wait, so faith is a provision of what Christ did, but you need to believe to receive the, the provision of faith. So you need to believe in order to receive the gift of faith. You get into the circularity there. So anyway, it's just a little tidbit I wanted to add. Uh, Owen gets into that more, by the way, in his book, uh, Death of Death and the Death of Christ. I, I recommend everybody who's really interested in the subject to read that more because a lot of a lot of this we're just parroting Owen, really. Yeah, I'm I'm not really coming up with I'm not coming up with anything new. I'm just piggybacking off of the work that's been done before. I mean, this is this is basic reform theology. I mean, it you see this type of stuff in Owen, among particular Baptists, even Presbyterians, this an understanding that covenant theology is crucial to our understanding of salvation and Christ's um Christ's atoning work. It, they're not separated at all and unfortunately our presbyterian friends have some what we would believe faulty conclusions as it relates to us but we would all agree that you cannot separate christ's death and his work apart from the new covenant itself there's yeah. you can't be reformed and say uh, i don't want to have anything to do with that you, you just can't there's so it's such an inseparable tie that you have to if you're going to be consistently reformed have to confess that at the very least you have to have some consistently reformed covenant theology in order to have a right understanding of the atonement. Yeah, which I think is why everybody eventually went this way. Even if there was a little bit of confusion on some of the earlier reformed men about exactly what was going on in terms of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, um, over time it really seemed to be clarified. Definitely in the, um, the, the British standards like the Westminster Savoy, the 1689, and then the Helvetic consensus later. Um, there's a reason for that. It's, that's because that's where covenant theology naturally leads you. In fact, it necessarily leads you, and a, and a close reading of Scripture uh, necessitates it. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. And even uh, even with the inconsistencies of of like the uh, the Westminster Assembly, if you look in their larger catechism, they even talk about. Uh, you know what the new who the new covenant was for it was for the elect you know and and they're being inconsistent there but they're recognizing that there's at least some limited group of people that this covenant is for and the mediatory work of christ uh is for so you can even see that uh even there with even with in spite of their inconsistencies all right so now we're gonna dive into a little bit more of the book itself um there's a series of quotes that we want to go through, um, not necessarily in any order, but just as, you know, as we're reading it, we're picking out certain things, we're seeing certain themes and we want to kind of address them. So these might be all over the place in the book. They might not necessarily be in order or in the same chapter, um, but just some themes that I think are important that we should um, discuss. So we'll be kind of jumping all over the place. 
Um, so, Sean, if you want to take us into that discussion, I think uh, we can move on here. Yeah, sure. Um, I do want to talk about the uh, the tone of the the book first, um, and this will probably be the the least substantial um, part of the uh, review because tone is tone. I, I think as a, a Christian, I'm duty bound to um, analyze and uh, believe any truth uh, apart from how it's presented, right? Uh, but in going through this book, I found that it was uh, that it seemed like Austin was fighting me on that point, making me uh, not want to uh, not want to deal with it. And uh, I'll start out with one quote here. This is actually from fairly early on in the book. It's from his uh, his uh, introduction. And he's talking about how people are trying to uh, or he was trying to research into the L, the limited atonement. Um, and it wasn't convincing him. So he says, none of it cured me. The more I thought about the L, the more I saw it plastered on the foreheads of its advocates. Um, which, you know, it's a, a sort of middle school level insult there. But as you're reading through it, uh, it was very distracting. And, you know, the, the flesh starts getting worked up and, you know, you don't want to take the rest of it seriously. So I, I actually found it a very difficult book to read in that regard. Not a not uh, everywhere. And in fact, I think uh, it improved as the book went on, but sprinkled throughout the book, you do have sort of snarky comments like that. It was just making it very frustrating to read. Um, so Austin, if you, if you do listen to this at some point, um, obviously it's your book, you can write it in any, any way you want, but as somebody on the other side who you, you did say in the book that you wanted to, uh, to persuade, I, I'd recommend toning down the, the boisterousness a little bit. Um, so for whatever it's worth. Um, that was the quote I had for that. Um, did you have some quotes there, Dan? Yeah, just kind of following up on your point there. I think that the, the tone made it hard for me to read the book. Um, snark and sarcasm are okay in certain places. Um, I have no problem using it. Uh, in certain places, I think there's a there is a time and a place for it. But when it's it seems to be sprinkled throughout an entire work, it makes it hard for those, especially, you know, we're coming from the other side. We want to understand what Austin is saying and we want to hear what he's saying. But when it's constantly feels like you're trying to poke my eye with your snarkiness, um, it makes it very hard for me to even want to hear what you have to say. Um, so, I mean, it, I think it's similar to you know, kind of how the vaccine stuff went with COVID, you know, you're going to yell at me and tell me that I have to take this vaccine. I have to take this vaccine. You're not going to make me want to take it if you're just telling me I have to take it all the time and making me seem like a bad person if I don't want to take it. Um, I think in a in a similar way, not exactly the same way, I think you can see that here. If you're constantly kind of jabbing at someone on the opposite side while trying to convince them, it's going to make it hard for them to really focus on what you're trying to say. And I think it can pose a distraction. Um, I think we got the substance of what Austin was trying yeah. to say, but it was that much harder to try and do it because um, I think it was distracting. Um, I mean, there's there's at least two chapters in the book that are dedicated to rants. Um, and I think that's just not a professional way to, to write a book. And it, it's very, very distracting. I think with the because he does have he has two chapters they're shorter than a page and one is like a brief rant and the other one is like another brief rant uh i think he's trying to come off as sort of quirky there i, I might i might be wrong but that's that's sort of how i took it just sort of like a, a quirky or more winsome way of doing it but it was a little distracting in the sense of i didn't know like 
obviously he's trying to present a serious case and i know that i can tell from what he's writing but it, it made it hard for me in a sense to take it seriously because i i had um it felt very jarring it's like okay at one point he's being very serious he's meticulously uh for some passages going through like what he believes about it and then you have that and it's like okay well now i feel like i shouldn't be taking you seriously here which i, I know is, is not the case so um yeah it was it was it was difficult in that regard and i, I do also want to comment that a lot of times people they'll attack the tone of a work and really it's because they don't like the substance of the work um Hopefully, as we go through, we'll we'll interact with enough of the substance to show that no, we 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 do have a case there. We're not just attacking him on tone. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, again, like I said, it it doesn't matter how you present something. Uh, as Christians, we should be willing to look at it and accept the truth if there is any truth in there. Um, but for me, it was it was very distracting. And as I was reading through, I felt myself more dwelling on the the sort of snarky things he said as opposed to what he was actually trying to communicate in terms of the truth. And it was, it was just hard in that regard. Yeah. I, I think you had the nail on the head when you talked about distracting from the serious nature of it, because I don't have any problem with boisterousness at all. And if I critiqued him for just being sarcastic, I'd be the biggest hypocrite on the face of the world. So I've read some very snarky uh, posts before, uh, but it's, it, and maybe I haven't always done it the best way either. I don't know. I can, I'm always open to refine things more. But uh, to me, the key is like to do it in such a way that it's still serious. You can be boisterous and serious at the same time, but it didn't feel like it always had that uh, balance to it. I think a good example of good boisterousness is uh, Martin Luther's bondage of the will. That's what good boisterousness, I think, looks like. But it's it's a serious tone to the work. It's scathing, too. He's, he makes some pretty sarcastic and snide remarks against Erasmus, but it, it still feels serious and it doesn't distract you. So, um, but yeah, to me, this was the least important critique yeah. of the book. I don't want to yeah. hammer him too much for it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's just more of an aside, but I, I do think it's important to just point that out because it, it was, it was throughout the whole book. I mean, it, you saw yeah. this tone kind of come up again and again, but going now we're going to dive into a little bit more in the book itself. Um, I want to talk about some of the historical sources that he uses. Uh, he focuses a lot on early Reformation sources, um, which I think is interesting um, because, you know, later on, I think, Andrew, you alluded to this earlier, you do see a development of this doctrine more over time. And then obviously in the high reform period or the high Calvinistic period um, with the reform confessions, you see a clear understanding of the extent of the atonement. Um, yeah. So I think that's probably why you see this emphasis on early uh reformed sources yeah but and, he and does just, uh, what yeah go ahead sorry just to, to clarify like yeah clarification i think is the best word because it's not like the doctrine wasn't there in the before it, so it's not that kind of development i'm just want to make this clear to the audience yeah, yeah, yeah no it was no, there in fact it was there before them and i'll have a brief historical section where i'll show that but there definitely was an increase in clarity yes. about this which is why you can see calvin talking both ways on this issue one way in favor of hypothetical universalism. And then there are other quotes from Calvin that are very much in favor of particular redemption. It was just something that wasn't as clear among the early form, I'd say. Yeah. Sorry. For no, thanks for bringing I think that's important. And yeah, I'll just bring up briefly. That's not really, we, we as Calvinists, you know, we, we get into fights about limited atonement all the time. Right. But that's not necessarily the, um, the, 
quite the issues that they were dealing with at that time, right? So it's not surprising that it's not refined. It's not really refined until you get to the uh, the Synod of Dort, right? And the Arminian controversy. So if they're not if they're not focused necessarily on that looseness in language, isn't all that surprising? Yeah, yeah, and especially with you know the ref the greater emphasis on confessionalism later on, I, I think that's part of the reason you see this clarity. You have a, a much more structured layout of what we believe about particular doctrines um, than maybe they had to before. So that might be a, a reason why you see greater clarity later on. Um, but regardless, you still see, you know, this this clarity being much more in the higher Reformation period than early on. And Austin focuses on the early Reformation period, I think, quite a bit. Um, and he uh, he uses different, um, you know, different sources. Appendix B, he does have multiple sources that he quotes. He gives certain quotes from different people like from Matthew Henry or Stephen Charnock that he says support his position. Um, one particular um, source that he I think used in an, to an uncomfortable extent was Richard Baxter, uh, which I find kind of interesting because Baxter, um, Baxter did not believe in a in justification by faith alone, and he denied imputation. So, you know, you have a clear uh, misunderstanding of the atonement, even in that respect. So why Baxter would be used um, is interesting. It'd be interesting to see why he chose that, but I don't think that's uh, a very helpful source to use given the heretical nature of his view of salvation um, and its inseparability from the atonement. But. All right. Um, and, and then there's something else I want to point out. Um, he does quote from the Westminster Assembly Minutes, um, and I think it's worth just putting in some clarity, just lest anyone think that just because you quote from the Westminster Minutes means that's what the Westminster Assembly thought about uh, a particular issue. Um, I don't know if that's what Austin's intent was, but I think it's worth just noting um, uh, and bringing some clarification. Um, the minutes in the in the Westminster Assembly themselves don't necessarily indicate the whole assembly's beliefs on a particular subject. Um, just look at what happened with the ecclesial uh, the ecclesiastical discussion uh, in the Westminster Assembly with the Scots and and uh, Rutherford and and all of that on uh, what you know what do the keys of the kingdom mean for. Uh, the church. How is that to be played out into the in the church itself? Um, the crisis of English Protestantism by Hunter Powell brings us out in great detail, but you don't see you know some monolithic understanding even at that. There is a development even in the Westminster Assembly over time uh, in that particular doctrine. Um, and you can even see. Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, and yeah, I think it's very clear in the confession itself too, because oh yeah, things yeah, that I cited from the 1689 can also be found in the Westminster, and the particular Baptist confession actually even tightened it further in certain spots, but all of the main spots that I quoted from can also be found in the Westminster. So yeah, so even if there were you know some differences with regards to how the extent of the atonement will be played out in the assembly, at the end of the day, the assembly came to a particular redemption. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's very, very much clear. I mean, you can see that, um, you can see that very clearly. Um, I think you, you know, you can see that in the Westminster, it's, uh, chapter eight, paragraph one, chapter eight, paragraph five, Westminster, larger catechism questions, 30 and 31, they end up on a high Calvinist particularist understanding. Um, so I, I just think it's worth noting that just so there's less anyone thinks that just because the minutes were quoted 
and and it seems to be in favor of Brown's position that that was the understanding of the Westminster. No, it was not. Not in the end, anyways. Um, they land on our particular position. All right. Um, jumping to page 21 in the book. And again, this is I'm quoting from the Kindle edition. So if you have the hard copy, it might not match up. But page 21 in the Kindle edition says, quote, through what can only be described as a kind of uh, theological sleight of hand, strict particularists subtly redefine the formula in order to suit their newfangled beliefs. In so doing, they not only mar the original meaning, but adopt a clumsy substitute, end quote. Um, and I think he brought this theme up more than once in the book. Um, I don't like being called someone who's a liar or deceptive without being able to prove that. And I, again, I think this is another area of distraction. Um, if you're going to attack your opponents, you need to do so in good faith and not just, you know, say they're being deceptive and lying. I don't think he proved that we're doing that. Um, there are plenty of people who have opposing views that are sincere in their beliefs. I'd sincerely believe that Mormons are sincere in their beliefs about um, the Book of Mormon. But that doesn't make them right. But I think they really believe it. I think a lot of them do. Um, that doesn't make them deceptive just because, you know, they believe a, a differing belief than I do. Um, I don't think he proved this point at all, um, that we're just being deceptive and and being dishonest in how we're presenting this. That's all we're doing. We're just taking this understanding of the atonement and twisting it uh, in a sleight of hand way. So I found that to be uh, to be a problematic statement in the book. He's uh, in that section. Is he dealing with the uh, the Lombardian formula and how? Um, yes, I believe so. Taking that, that we've taken the Lombardian formula yeah. and, and twisted it. I'll, yeah. I'll I'll at least throw him a little bit of a bone there that um, the way some Calvinists talk about the sufficiency uh, sufficient for all, they are sort of he's he's right in the sense that they're not. Um, it's not quite enough, at least the way it's presented. Um, that, well, it doesn't really matter if it's sufficient for all when you're going to do the, uh, the free offer of the gospel, because, um, it, it, it's not effectual for them. So what is it, what does it matter? I think he has a little bit of a point there, but I think that's more because it's not explained as it should be, as opposed to it's a, a fundamental issue there. Yeah. There's just confusion among people sometimes when they apply it or whatever. If there's a reason why, you know, people like Basin the like ended up not adopting the formula. I think we can adopt the paraphrased version that I gave earlier when if we make it clear what we mean by it. But I would agree with Austin that the, the full form of it, uh, I, I wouldn't say it as Lombard put it. But uh, but yeah, for, for sure. But uh, but your point is also very much appreciated, Dan, that you, you don't want to accuse us of doing something particular without evidence of of trying to do that but, yeah there's a again, difference in misunderstanding something and doing a sleight of hand again that all yeah there's a big difference between those two yeah. things and, and yeah and i he, think this is a good opportunity to make it clear what we mean for yes efficiency for all and efficiency absolutely for elect. Um, but yeah so hopefully this will this will help yep yep all right so jumping forward to page 23 um this is going back to the sufficiency versus you know effectuality discussion of the atonement um and he seeks to try to show our view is incorrect by bringing forth an illustration about a rich man and certain people in a community. So I'm going to read some of that. Uh, this is page 23. Uh, quote, suppose a rich man decides to write up a banknote for giving your neighbor's debts. Suppose it's a one-time deal. Now imagine standing on your front lawn, hose in hand, watering your flowers, 
when your neighbor walks outside to chat. With a big grin, he proceeds to tell you that the rich man's total assets are sufficient to meet the needs of your current debt load. End quote. And then he goes on to bring the conversation out between the neighbors, essentially leading to the realization that one neighbor had his debts covered while the other did not. Um, and that's supposed to um, show that we are wrong in our assertion of this distinction between sufficiency uh, and effectuality that that Andrew brought up earlier in terms of the clarification. Because, um, you know, when we're talking about Christ's sufficiency for all, we are saying that there is this infinite value that is uh, with Christ's work. It is sufficient to cover the sins of all men. Um, that's just classic Reformed theology, and we believe it's biblical. Um, but we do not believe there is a real, um, you know, objective atonement for all men. And I think we, yeah. we've already laid that out. But this distinction here that he tries, or, or this issue here that he tries to bring out with this um, particular illustration, I don't think helps him at all. I think it illustrates our position very well. Yes, the rich man does actually have enough money to cover all these particular people, but he has the choice to apply it to whom he wills. And that's essentially what we see with regards to limited atonement. Christ died for, for the purpose of a particular people, thereby making his atonement sufficient to cover every sin of every single person. But God's infinite wisdom, he can choose to apply it to who he wants. There's no obligation to pay the debt for every single person. That is the gift of the giver to give to whom he wills. Just like the rich man's money is his money to give to whom he wills. He doesn't have to give it to everyone unless you're a communist or a socialist. Um, <laughs> but uh, otherwise, he, he has the ability to do what he wants with his money. That's that's his prerogative. Um, so I think there there is a, a problem here with that uh, in that it doesn't help him. It just simply, I think, brings out our position very well uh, and consistently. Um, but I, I think it it leads to some sort of obligation that the rich man must pay um, the debts of all these different people. Uh, I think that was the implication that he was giving. And we would say, no, he doesn't have to. He's God. It's his gift to give to whom he will. There's no obligation on the giver. And he misses a very key element that it, uh, the rich man is not offering to give it to anybody who wants to receive it of him in his example. If that was the case, it would have seen a lot less funny, you know, the example that he gave. But <laughs> that just goes to because yeah. that's the case with Christ. Even though he gives it to whom he wills, he also gives us the desire to receive it. So Yeah, because we don't want it at all. <laughs> yeah. In our Which natural state. Case, exactly. But the case with all these analogies is they're always missing a very key element. And that's what makes it look silly when he presents it the way that he does. Um, which I think is a good transition into... Uh, this next section here, which is, I guess, pivoting off of that, and uh, particularly as it relates to the free offer of the gospel and how the doctrine of limited atonement relates to the free offer of the gospel. Um, so against our ability to, to give the free offer of the gospel consistently, uh, Austin levies against us what's called the uh, grounding objection. And it appears like it's the most important argument for him if we judge by the force and emphasis with which it's put forward, he puts it, uh, I think, a, a few chapters even on this subject, if I remember correctly. Um, but anyways, Austin argues that the free offer of the gospel is undermined by the doctrine of particular redemption. By free offer of the gospel, we mean the indiscriminate preaching and offering of the good news to every man, woman, and child uh, where we genuinely offer to them salvation through Jesus Christ if they embrace the gospel by faith. That's the free offer of the gospel. 
Austin argues, however, that if we believe in the limited atonement, we're inconsistent to offer the gospel indiscriminately in this way, because if Christ didn't die for the non-elect, uh, we don't have a gospel to offer to them, to, to everybody indiscriminately. We have no grounds for the free offer, according to him. So we have to make one of two choices, either reject limited atonement or else reject the free offer and then slide into hyper-Calvinism. So dealing with this, uh, I want to start off by just saying that not being able to reconcile something in the something that the Bible clearly teaches is no excuse to abandon it. As we already took a little time to show, the Bible does teach the doctrine of particular redemption. It does teach it. And indeed, it also teaches to us uh, freely, the uh, freely, excuse me, it tells us to freely and indiscriminately offer the gospel via ex the example of Christ and the apostles, because that's what they did. Consider Revelation 22, 17, for example, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. So that's the language of an offer, and it's given openly, promiscuously to whomsoever will heed it. Uh, seeing the Bible teaches both things, we have to embrace both things, the free offer and limited atonement. God nowhere gives us permission to ignore what he says until we can wrap our puny minds around it. We almost might want to say this is an A truth and a B truth, and you got to have both. Um, anyways, those who've read the book know what I'm getting at. Uh, going further forward, though, uh, all that being said, I think it can indeed be demonstrated that there is no contradiction between these two things. It is not necessary to currently have something in your possession or even intend to get it in order to make a real offer of it. And none of the analogies he used come close to proving otherwise. All the analogies he gives, analogies of offers that require the thing offered to be at hand, are missing key elements that prevent them from being valid in the context of the free offer of the gospel. Uh, I, I found at least four key elements. There might be more. Uh, that are missing from his analogies of a man offering uh, another man an iPhone, for example, or medicine. He'll, he'll do things like that. He said, like, oh, well, if I'm going to offer you an iPhone, I got to have an iPhone and, and examples like that. Uh, but there are four key elements that I think are missing. Uh, first, uh, a situation where the means of receiving the offer is effectual. In other words, it infallibly secures receiving the thing being offered which uh, agreeing to receive an iPhone doesn't do, for example. Agreeing to do that doesn't isn't an effectual way of receiving it, necessarily. Uh, the second element, a situation where the offerer has legally bound himself to give the thing offered if someone meets the conditions of receiving it. Uh, the third one is a situation where there is infallible, not merely probable, foreknowledge of whether someone will or will not receive the offer. That radically changes things, and he doesn't uh, deal with that at all, as far as I could see in his book. Uh, and then the fourth example, excuse me, the fourth element, a situation where the thing offered is simultaneously the sole and effectual way that the means for receiving it is provided. In other words, the thing offered itself also effectually secures the means of receiving it and the exercising of those means. None of the examples he gives have, uh, I think, even one of those four elements, and, and one of them would cut the short circuit the whole thing. And so to illustrate that, I'm going to give a counter analogy based on the fourth element. <clears throat> so imagine a game show where there are four contenders and one winner. 
After going through all the challenges, the judges the judges have picked the winner and prepared the prize, a sports car with the winner's name on it. But rather than simply give it to the winner, uh, the show makes it more interesting and has the four contestants stand before a locked door with the car behind it, and each are given a unique key. The game show host doesn't know who the winner is, only the judges do, but he simply says to each of them, if you can open the door with your key, you will find a sports car with your name on it. Has he done anything wrong by saying, saying this? No, nobody would, I think, raise an eyebrow at this example unless it was in the context of this debate. Um, and they believed in universal atonement and realized the implications of affirming this kind of scenario. But indeed, the game show host told them all the truth. If they can open the door with their key, a car with their name will be behind that door. And that's true even though right now there's only one of their names on that car behind the door. Not only has the game show host done nothing wrong by sharing this with all of them, it's actually the only thing the game show host can responsibly do. He doesn't know who has the right key, so he has to encourage all of them to try to open the door because that's the only way to discover who the car is for. He can't just say, well, I don't know whose it is, so I'm not going to tell them to open it because I don't want to be dishonest and make an insincere offer. He, no, he tells them all, if you, try, try to open it. This is what the preacher of the gospel must likewise do. Further, imagine one of the contestants decides he doesn't want to even try to open the door. He doesn't want the car, and he doesn't like the game, so this contestant just walks away. Regardless whether or not the car would end up being his, did he not still willfully despise and reject the car and the offer for the car, as well as the opportunity to receive it? Then why can't we truthfully say that those who hear the gospel and willfully reject placing faith in Christ have indeed rejected salvation, like Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, which Austin brings up. Because he says, because you have a text like that where it talks about people rejecting the uh, rejecting salvation, it must have really, Christ must have really atoned for them there. That's not the case. They still willfully rejected the opportunity to receive it. So they rejected Christ, they rejected the offer, they rejected the gospel. We can say those things. And so that's just element number four. That was only one of the four things I brought up. I'm not going to cover all of them, uh, but I did also want to talk about element two, just because I think it's key to understanding the true nature of the gospel, of the, go the offer of the gospel. Uh, the analogy we gave for element four, I think, illustrates the legitimacy of the free offer from the perspective of the preacher. But element two helps to clarify the genuineness of the offer from the perspective of God. There is a real offer of salvation by God to the sinner when the gospel is preached, and those who reject it are guilty of rejecting an offer given to them by God. The best way of understanding how this can be is to understand that God's offer is more than a casual affirmation that he'll do something like, yeah, if you want the iPhone, I'll give it to you. It's a lot more than that. Uh, it has an essentially legal character, as all the promises of God, in fact, do. When God promises something, he's bound by his own righteous character to fulfill it. God's promises are as immutable as he himself is. And thus we see saints pleading their case before his holy throne on the basis of his promise, almost like an attorney would. Like Moses, for example, pleading on behalf of Israel so that God would not utterly destroy them. He pleads on the basis of God's promises. And that's because God is also a judge who has, he will make sure that all righteousness is fulfilled. And the chief way of that is his righteous, consistent character is vindicated. So whenever he makes a promise, he has it where legally self-binds himself to make do and to make good on it if somebody 
uh, fulfills the conditions of receiving that promise. Assuming it's a conditional promise, we know that there are also unconditional promises. Um, but anyways, uh, thus when God promises that whosoever believes shall be saved, then he is effectively making a real legally binding offer, which he is bound by his own character to make good on for whoever comes to him in faith, whether they are elect or hypothetically non-elect. The reason why this is so significant is because such legal offers do not require the thing being offered to be at hand in order to be legitimate. Nor, if the offerer is sufficiently confident, does the offerer necessarily have to make provision to even obtain the thing offered in time. Uh, let me give an example. I can make a legal, a real legally binding offer uh, to someone right now. I can say, Sean, if you jump to the moon by tomorrow, I will give you a million dollars. And I'm going to give you this contract. And I'm going to sign this. We're going to have witnesses. We are going to make this a legally binding contract. If you jump to the moon by tomorrow, I will give you a million dollars. So imagine I make this deal, but then you see me run around breathlessly trying to make sure that I'm able to obtain the million dollars by tomorrow. Don't you think I'm an idiot? Like that's completely, completely foolish. You know he's not going to jump to the moon by by tomorrow. You're like, what are you doing? Like, do you think he can actually do this? Why are you so concerned to get the million dollars? And you'd be right for saying that. The validity of the offer doesn't hinge on me making sure I have the million dollars by tomorrow. That would only be necessary if I thought he could meet the condition. The contract is binding either way, though. When he fails to meet it, he can't complain that the contract was invalid simply because I don't have the money on it. That's completely immaterial. Uh, that would have only been relevant if he met the condition. We haven't gotten to that point yet. The reality is he was the one who failed to meet the condition of the contract, and so he is responsible for failing to meet the conditions of the contract. Uh, it wasn't a condition of the contract that I'd have the million dollars by tomorrow. It's just that if he did this, I would give it to him. Um, and so he's responsible for not getting his, his money uh, and for having no means of legally binding me to give him that money. And I had every right in the world to sit back and relax, being confident that he wouldn't make the, the conditions. Uh, if, however, by some miracle, Sean jumped to the moon by, the, by tomorrow and I didn't have the money, the contract would nevertheless be in force and he could sue me before the court of law to get what I agreed to give him. And I would be indeed indebted to him until I could pay him off. I hope everyone who's listening knows that despite whatever grounds I have to be confident in this scenario, God, who knows the total inability of a sinner to believe without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, and for whom the future is as much before his face as our present moment, is infinitely more certain than I am that the non-elect will not believe than I'm certain about Sean not jumping in the moon, who from eternity has seen their destruction before him. Why on earth would he lay the sins of those whom he has predestined to destroy on his precious son? Well, is it just so he could say, see, I really did make an atonement for you. I just didn't want to give it to you. I, I don't see another reason except to just be able to wave it in people's faces, basically, uh, because the offer of the gospel is still valid without him having to do anything of the kind if he knows they're not going to meet the conditions. Uh, the non-elect sinner willfully rejects the gospel offer and has only himself to blame. Whether or not Christ died for them, the non-elect was promised that if he met the condition, he would be saved. And he thus is to blame for not meeting the condition. If by some impossible possibility he believed in spite of not being elect, he could rightfully sue God before the judgment seat 
and God would be obligated by his own character and promise to not cast the sinner into hell and somehow find a way to include him in the work of Christ. But it's foolish really to even speculate about any such contingency because that could only happen if God wasn't God. And you'd be much better off counting uh, angels on needles than doing that. Uh, the point is, though, that the sinner who rejects the gospel had every opportunity to obtain a legal legal right to the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. He really had that opportunity, but he willfully, consciously refused to do this. So it's his fault. And Christ not bearing their sins does not change that any more than me not having a million dollars removes the blame away from Sean for uh, agreeing to jump to the moon but when he couldn't do that. The offer was real and valid, and there was no reason for God to make a provision for something that could only be possible if he wasn't who he says he is. He doesn't make contingencies for that sort of thing. And I think this is why covenant theology is so important, too, because God made a covenant with uh, Israel that there would be, um, you know, a, a certain people that would have the law of God written on their hearts and that they would know him. And God is obligated to keep his end of the bargain by virtue of the covenant. Um, and that's all tied through the legal aspect of the law keeping of Christ and the uh, the fulfilling of the law's demands as it relates to uh, the penal side. All of that is tied together in covenant, which God will inevitably and immutably upkeep because of his very nature. Um, going going to your... Uh, your um element that's missing there of um the the foreknowledge of god right um in uh i just want to highlight that a little bit it is um i think it's an important aspect of it because every single example he brings up in the book um it, they're they're human examples right and the humans don't have the ability to procure um but in the example of the iphone right um you can't say everybody gets an iphone um and um, you don't actually don't have enough for everybody, right? Or uh, if there, it's written, if the uh, the name of it's written on, uh, the name of the person is written on the iPhone, you don't have the ability to, to give it to someone whose name wasn't written on it. Um, but in the case of God, right, um, it's not possible to break God's, um, God's uh, decree, right? But theoretically, if it were possible and somebody were able to actually believe who wasn't regenerated, God would have already known that um, long before it ever happened and would have been able to procure um, additional uh, atonement, additional atonement for sin. That's not even a very good way to, uh, to put it, but uh, I don't well, have Because any... it's not possible. Yeah, you know? yeah. You can't catch God flat-footed. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, he ended up believing even though I didn't lay his sins on Christ. What am I going to do? He, he doesn't worry about that kind of thing. Yeah, Nothing exactly. Because he he's decreed it. He's, yeah. uh, he's declared the end from the beginning. And it's foolish that he would have to do something that he know is not ever going to be relevant just to make an offer, which he can legally make anyways. Yeah, he still has the ability in some sense uh, to do so. Um, and it is sort of an issue because you're, you're pulling apart all of God's attributes in order to show, well, in this way, it, it would still work. And in this way, it still works. But you're right. God is God. So um, it's it's sort of silly to even talk about these things as distinct when they're, they're not really. Yeah, it, it's essentially making God dependent upon something else outside of himself. Yeah. Namely, the free action of a creature. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which which is what it always boils down to. Right. <laughs> it's always well, what it boils down to. Yep. Yep. 
who's God um, to tell me I couldn't end up believing, even though he was right. <laughs> Yeah, who are we to talk back to God and say things like that? Mm. Um, so kind of going along that same line of thinking on page 30, um, he says this, and he's using an analogy again to try and, and prove our position wrong as it relates to the gospel call. This is page 30 of the Kindle edition. It says, quote, if you're if you're scratching your head trying to understand the point, just imagine that you're suddenly transported into Satan's burning palace. Feeling a tad overwhelmed, you nevertheless muster the courage to offer the gospel of Jesus Christ to the watching demons. You say, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven. Since most of us believe that Christ hasn't provided a means by which the demons can be saved, it wouldn't make sense for us to offer them as a means of escape. It doesn't exist. Someone might say the words, but the words are groundless, end quote. And the uh, problem with this is this assumes that you know who uh, is going to receive the gospel and who isn't, at least in the case with the demons. You know the demons aren't going to, uh, you aren't going to, uh, you know, receive it. So therefore, it's silly to offer it to them. Um, yeah. And I would say in that sense, yes. But when we're talking about the world as in general, we don't know the elect are and we don't know. Uh, you know, we don't have a chart that says, OK, this person is going to be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. This person is not. This person will be elect. So only talk to these people who are labeled as elect and just don't send it to these people. We don't know. Yeah. And we are commanded to Matthew 28. We're commanded to take the gospel to the world and to go into all the world and spread the gospel indiscriminately as the church. Um, and so I don't think this analogy really addresses the issue because it assumes that you know who the recipients or who, you know, the spiritual state of the people that you're giving the gospel to uh, in an absolute sense, um, which we don't. So we spread the gospel indiscriminately. Um, so to go, to go I don't think this my, helped at all. Sorry. Uh, no, I was just going to say, to, to go back to the game show uh, host example, it'd be like saying, oh, well, if the game show host can say, if you have a key, uh, you know, try to open the, the the door to receive your car. It'd be saying like, oh, if you're OK with that, you should just go to the audience and say, hey, everyone else, try to open the, the door. So it's like, well, they don't even have a key. You know, right. like that would be the parallel. It's like, no, it, it's foolish to offer to people who you know or creatures that you know Christ has not redeemed. That's completely immaterial when we're dealing with categories of people who we don't know if they're redeemed or not. If if somebody had a non-elect uh, print stamped on their forehead, I wouldn't preach the gospel to them. I'd be wasting my time. I'd preach God's judgment to them, maybe, because that might glorify God. But again, it's just a completely false analogy. Again, yeah, it's it's creating an it's creating a situation that doesn't exist. It I think it's really I think it's really a straw man because it's trying to paint our position in a way that we're not presenting it at all. Yeah. Uh, we don't believe that. We believe that we spread the gospel indiscriminately as a church, and we do so because we're commanded to. We, And more importantly, we obey the Lord, even if something from our perspective might seem illogical. It might not yeah. seem logical in our fallen fleshly state to be able to spread the gospel to indiscriminately, um, but we do so because God has commanded us to. We have clear um, ecclesiastical authority to do this work um, as commanded by our Lord in Matthew 28, especially. Um, so I think that at the end of the day trumps um, any kind of alleged logical inconsistencies, even though we've demonstrated it's not inconsistent, but regardless, um, our Lord has commanded us to do it. We should do it. Um, jumping ahead to page 63, we're getting a little bit into some hermeneutical discussion. And I do appreciate uh, his, he does go, 
um, I, I think a little bit into um, the importance of, you know, clear passages or, or everyone kind of has their go-to passage for, uh, for their position. And he tries to at least break down some of the hermeneutical uh, differences that surround this issue. And I appreciate that. Um, he says this on page 63, quote, my deep concern with strict particularism is that the entire enterprise is built on removing the sting of universalistic passages. When you read or listen to presentations on the subject by strict particularists, they spend a good deal of time convincing their audience that the particularistic passages are non-negotiable. Tent peg A. They then turn around and devote a significant amount of time to convincing the audience that the universalistic passages don't say what they seem to be saying, tent peg B, end quote. Um, so really, the, the issue is not trying to remove the sting of universalistic passages. We're just trying to be consistent, right? We're, we, we see what we see in Scripture about the atonement in not just one place. We, we look at Scripture as a whole, and we take the passages that are most clear and use those to interpret less clear. That's a reformed hermeneutic. That's what our yep. confession says. That's the Westminster Confession. That's the Floyd Declaration. You use the what's called the analogy of faith to interpret scripture. John Gill talks about this. Owen talks about this. This is a standard reformed understanding of um, interpreting scripture. Scripture is its own best interpreter. So we go to clearer passages that speak about a particular subject to interpret ones that might be less clear. Um, so he is right in that sense that everybody is, regardless of whether you're a particularist or not, you're going to go to a place that you think is, you know, immutable understanding of a particular topic in the scriptures and you're going to use that to interpret other places. But the question is, can you consistently do that? Um, and that's really what we're concerned about here. We're not avoiding universalistic passages because, you know, they're uncomfortable. We're trying to be consistent with the full revelation of scripture. And again, going back to the covenant theology discussion, we're talking when you're talking about redemptive history as a whole, you want to see how God has worked with the particular people. And then how does he work with a particular people? And when you understand that, then you can look at these other passages that may seem to be universalist and uh, and interpret them in light of that. I mean, there's no way you can take you can say in a place where the scriptures that Christ died for everyone, then go to Hebrews and try to make that fit with some sort of universalistic understanding without butchering uh, proper covenant theology. You can't make it work. So you have to take more clear passages and use those to interpret others. But the question is consistency and hermeneutics. It's not, you know, about avoiding the sting. It's not like, oh, we don't like John, this version of John 3.16 over here. Um, and so we're just avoiding it and going to Hebrews. No, it, it's using a reform principle of the analogy of faith to interpret these other passages in light of more clear passages. It's just not suspending our belief in what God's told us very clearly elsewhere when we come yes. to a particular passage. God yeah. doesn't approve us being like a, a, a tabula rasa or a blank slate kind of thing when we go to a text in Scripture. It's like, oh, Unless I'm just going to pretend you haven't, you haven't spoken to me before, God. You've been silent to me up until now. What would my <laughs> natural reading be of this text? That's not honoring a God to suppress no. his truth, that what he's already revealed to you elsewhere. And we do the same thing when you go to, uh, say, anthropomorphic passages, for example. Like when God's walking in the cool of the day, is like, oh, are we avoiding the sting of those passages? Like, no, we're just reading it in light of what God's clearly revealed elsewhere, how we should interpret this. And that's our basis. It's providing us the backdrop, the context for understanding the rest of Scripture. And Austin does the same thing himself. Um, 
you know, he'll make this analogy of tent peg A, tent peg B. He's like, oh, the problem with particulars is they're trying to remove the one truth and hold on to the other uh, or whatever. But really, we have to have a way of holding both. It's like, well, you removed the tent peg of particular redemption. So it's just you, you've arbitrarily chosen which ones are the tent pegs we need to keep or whatnot. He does the same thing. He has to read the uncomfortable strict particularist passages in light of his hypothetical universalism. The big difference between us is I think that the uh, the the passages that we're going through and the like, uh, they're they're part of a like extended arguments that are going across the, the the entirety of the Bible, beginning with their foundation in the Old Testament and working through the New Testament. This is a core theme. It extends from a core theme of the Bible's teaching versus his proof texts are just that isolated verses, typically. Typically, they're isolated verses, and it's like, well, this is how I would have viewed this if I didn't have any other theology running in the back of my head. That's inherently a weaker form of scripture proof than looking at, well, what's the Bible's holistic message on this topic, and then reading in light of that. Yeah, it did seem, and I don't have an exact quote in front of me, unfortunately, but uh, he said things certain, uh, sort of in line with, well, isn't this the way you would naturally read this? You know, you're you're making this a strange reading or whatever. And I really wanted to ask him at some point, like, okay, well, have you ever had like a Jehovah's Witness or somebody talk to you about like John 17, right? Um, the Father, uh, believing in the Father as only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent, right? Which at least surface level seems to make a distinction that the Father is only true God and Jesus is not, right? But we know from the rest of scripture that can't be the case. Um, so it doesn't matter what the, the natural reading I would come to is, uh, apart from, uh, any other, uh, point in scripture, right? If I have a solid foundation elsewhere, I'm going to use it. Now, I, ultimately, I don't think he, or he doesn't think that I have a solid foundation, but it's not, from my perspective, it's not, uh, oh, we'll just ignore that. It's a, it's an attempt to reconcile all of scripture so that there are no contradictions in it. Yeah, there's no such thing as an uh, as like this hermetically sealed, like isolated natural reading of anything. It's always the natural reading given a certain context and implicit understanding. So the question is, are we going to take the context and implicit understanding that God gives us elsewhere? Or are we going to choose something else? And that's ultimately the question that we have to ask ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Are we reading this? holistically consistently or not because the plain passages under you know people use that to come up with all kinds of different doctrines you know the oh the the text plainly says this so i don't care what anything else says in the passage this is my proof text and proof texting kind of becomes the standard isolated from the rest of scripture and we we just can't do that um that might work in a broader evangelical setting where theology and and biblical teaching don't really matter that much but when we're talking about a reformed and and Austin does put himself in the reform camp. We're talking about a reformed understanding of hermeneutics. We're talking about looking at scripture as a whole and letting scripture interpret scripture, um, and that's the basis of all of our uh, interpretations for our theology, whatever those might be. All right, um, kind of along those lines of hermeneutics, um, he said there's a quote in here that I want to bring out um, that I thought was very interesting. Um, this is on page 71. He says, quote, I'm no Greek scholar, 
In fact, I know next to nothing about Greek, but I do know that when men start appealing to the Greek to justify their views, especially when said appeals to the Greek run counter to mainstream translations, there's more than a slight chance they're riding the wonky train, end quote. Um, I think this was a, I think it was a very poor, uh, poor assertion. Um, and I think it hurts his credibility, especially from Hernanik's point of view. Um, and it's definitely not a reformed understanding of the text. Um, you know, the reformed understanding of the text would be that the, the original translation or the original languages take precedent over translations and that, uh, the translations are errant and can err, but the uh, original texts do not in as much as the word of God is in there. And it's funny, even uh, Calvin, whom he uses substantially in this book, would not have agreed with this statement um, at all. Um, Howard Garnet Howard Milne, in his book on page 47, uh, has the Bible kept pure. He says, Calvin believed that he had access to the complete Bible, which was the original revelation of both words and doctrine given to the authors of the scriptures. He considered that God had preserved his complete Bible without error in the original languages, apart from copious errors and some records which could be corrected by the received scriptures or other original language manuscripts or codices. And then he Milne cites Calvin's Institutes and his commentary on the epistles of Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So I, I just wanted to put that as a side. That was a very interesting um, quote. And it almost sounds um, like what you would find in a King James only camp, right? Well, if the original text goes against a, a you know, my King James Bible, then, um, then we got to, we have a bunch of problems here. Um, so I think that's that is important because I think it can it calls into question his hermeneutical method um, in general as it relates to how he's interpreting these texts. But that, that's just more of an aside. And, Any comments on that? Yeah, definitely. Knowledge of the original languages can often help you restrict what the possible meanings in English are. Right. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to remember exactly what it was, but there's a part in Daniel. I think it's where uh, you have the beasts and it says that the, the, the beasts were before the, the last beast, right? Um, and the question is whether or not it's before temporally or before spatially, because you could say either, right? They were before it spatially, um, like they're all before it or before it in time. And I want to say the Aramaic word only refers to spatially, right? So... If I'm coming to a passage and I have an understanding of the original language, I could I could therefore say, well, any interpretation that takes this temporally is, is wrong um, because of because of that uh, knowledge of the original language where someone who's stuck to the original uh, to just the English wouldn't be able to do that. Coming to um, whosoever in John three sixteen, which he uh, I think is the original um, the original uh, discussion where that quote comes from. Um, I don't have an issue with whosoever, as long as you're understanding it in a way that the original language would support. When the original language is literally all the believing ones, um, that's, the, that's how it's literally rendered. And it's not that yeah. hard to, to see. You can just look at a parallel. You don't need to, or a um, uh, interlinear. It's not that hard. You don't need to necessarily know the original languages to see it. When you uh, have an understanding of the Greek, you're, you can then say, okay, well, it can't, the meaning can't be X. So I'm not saying that whosoever is wrong, but we need to understand it in a way that the original language would support that. Yeah. Um, so that's that's an important distinction I want to make. And something just to note for our listeners, Sean and Andrew are both both read Greek and Hebrew and are students of both languages. So from a credibility perspective here, they can speak to this. Do you have something you want to add, Andrew? Um, 
we'll, we'll go on. I, I had a, a small comment, but let's let's continue. Okay. Okay. Well, it, it, it's funny in this case, Sean, you know, if, if this was the context of John 3.16, maybe he's avoiding the sting of the uh, what the original language means and going yeah, to, to avoiding it. But, well, I don't know it, but I'm going to call into question the Greek, you know, the underlying understanding of this from a linguistic perspective because I don't like the translation. Yeah. Or I don't like the conclusion. Because I remember reading this quote, too. It did really stick out to me. And I, I do... Um like 99% positive the context was he was talking about John 3.16 and what people were saying whosoever meant. Um, uh, I'll give 1% in case I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was what it was. At the very least, you can't understand it in such a way that the passage is implying that anybody whatsoever has the ability to believe. Yes. It's that whoever yes. does believe will be saved. That's yes. what the Greek makes it very clear. So you can't yes. understand whosoever in another way. And even outside, even if you don't know Greek, if you read the last part of the verse, you know, it's, for God so loved the world that he gave his own, that whosoever believes, it, there's this clear indication of purpose in there, right? He gave yep. his son to the world so that those yep. who believe will be saved. There's a clear, yep. even in the even in the translation, it's there. Um, people focus too much on the word whosoever, though, and, and then forget the rest of the passage. And then obviously yeah. they're they're missing the underlying linguistic aspect of it, too. But even from the translation, I think you can bring that out if you let it um, read as it's supposed to read. Yeah, they, um, they're reading into it their idolatrous conception that they're like God and that they can just ex nihilo, bring out new wills whatsoever. Nothing can restrain them from doing that. They're reading all of that into that word, whosoever. Oh, it says whosoever believes, and I know I can do and believe whatever I want at any time. Therefore, it is absolutely for everybody. That's essentially what's going on in the backdrop of at least an Arminian uh, who does it. Now, obviously, I know Austin um, is not an Arminian, right? He does believe that faith is a gift of God, but uh, that's typically the stumbling block that people have when they come to the text like this. They, they have this... This thing that's deeply ingrained in our idolatrous nature that we're like God and we can do whatever absolutely. And they read that into whosoever when it doesn't imply that in the slightest. I'll also take note of world here, um, the word world, because he, he spent a little bit of time. I think he went through every single spot in First John where the world, word world was used in order to prove his point about what it meant. Um, and here... I think is a, a, a good spot to indicate that world doesn't extend necessarily to everybody in the world, right? Because how does God love the world um, that whosoever believes will be saved, right? So the love of the world generically, or the love of the world is that some will be saved. So it's not using it, it's using it generically of humanity, not necessarily every single individual person. Yep. Yep. And again, that requires analogy of faith. And in this case, to some extent, a proper understanding of the language to bring that out. Um, but moving on here, um, page 126. So he's starting to, we're going to talk a little bit about the pecuniary nature of the atonement, because this becomes a pretty big theme later on. Um, and in this particular quote, we're going to talk about, uh, he brings out how God can justly condemn someone who rejects the gospel uh, even though he has paid for their sins and uh, they reject that specific gift. So on page 126, he says this, quote, if we take seriously the condition, condition, uh, conditionality of annex to salvation, the strict particularist logic is deeply cut. 
If a man does not believe and therefore doesn't meet the condition for receiving salvation, forgiveness is not granted, and God can justly condemn them, even though Christ satisfied the demands of the law and justice on their behalf, end quote. Um, this doesn't solve the problem at all, um, because this only deals with the atonement as it relates to a penal understanding uh, in terms of just taking away the, uh, the punishment of the law, right, which would be eternal death. Um, however, we have to understand the atonement coupled with that is the understanding about imputation, right? The, the atonement was not just satisfying the wrath of God, but it was also Christ taking on each individual sin of the elect. Um, right. And if we, and there's absolutely no way, you know, given imputation that Brown's view of justice, given gospel rejection can even work. If my sins have truly been imputed to Christ so that he is can be declared guilty, really guilty, not just uh, vicariously, not just indirectly, but actually guilty because God does not punish anyone who is truly innocent. That would be against his nature. So Christ had to actually be guilty, uh, right. being imputed with our guilt. Um, there is no way that this could work. There is nothing that I could do in any situation that could get me out of the grace of God or that could send me to hell if, in any rejection of these things. Th this, situ this is not even a hypothetical scenario. It just won't work if Christ uh, has truly taken on my sin, because those sins that were imputed to Jesus Christ were individually punished at the cross and were dealt with, so that the wrath of God against me um, being impatient with my kids the other day when I shouldn't have been is taken care of at the cross. That is not going to send me to hell, because Christ took care of that. It is finished. So there's there's no way that this scenario of someone whom Christ has died for is going to do anything to be able to uh, be pushed out of the kingdom or sent into hell. It's just it's not going to happen, given uh, what imputation means. Uh, Turretin says this on imputation, quote, hence it happens that as he was made God uh, made of God sin for us by the imputation of our sins. So in turn, we are made the righteousness of God in him by the imputation of his obedience. Second Corinthians 5.21, end quote. That's from his Institute 16.3.4. So there's that great exchange. We get his righteousness. He's taking on our sin and, and uh, our guilt. It's being imputed to him directly. So he is treated as if he actually did those things. So there's nothing uh, that's left out of uh, the atonement whatsoever. You guys want to add anything to that? There's no possibility of Christ bearing the wrath of God if sins aren't laid on his on Correct. his account to be. It's born not just. It's not just as against God's nature. Like in fact, that's what Abraham pleads to God about. Like, will you destroy the just with the unjust in Genesis when he's pleading for uh, Sodom? And he's like, he's like, hey, if there's even five righteous men in here, I will not destroy the city. It turns out there's only one, but he delivered him out of the city beforehand because God, as a just God. He would have preferred to let the multitudes of sinners go on unpunished than to punish a righteous man with them. That's how much God cares about the, the, the innocent. And Christ is the supreme innocent he could have never punished unless our sins were laid on his account. And that's what we see in the Psalms as well, the Messianic Psalms. Psalm, Sean has an article about this on Psalm 69 in particular. Like Christ will talk about his sins and his foolishness even though he had none it was ours that he took upon for himself and considered as his own so intimately that he identified with them 
and bore them and abolished them on the cross. And that's why Daniel says that the Messiah would make an end of sin on the, at the cross. It's not just punishment. It's the sin itself is wiped out and annihilated at Calvary. And that is lost under the hypothetical scheme. And this is where it becomes a real issue. And you see like the absolute importance of this doctrine here is that it threatens what Christ has done for us at the cross and our status today because of it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, he sort of wants to say that um, the the wrath that God gives towards those that were atoned for is sort of different than, um, there, it's not the wrath for their individual sins, it's now the wrath for rejecting um, rejecting the, the offer of the gospel, correct? I might be misunderstanding um, what he's I, saying I, I don't, near the end I, there. I don't think so, because he may say... Okay. Uh, because he's saying that the atonement is a conditional thing, essentially. So, like, mm -hmm. he's like, yes, I'm providing you the uh, atonement of your sins on the condition that you believe. That's the way mm -hmm. that he phrases it. So if you don't believe, you don't have the atonement for those sins as well. Um, but, yeah, that would certainly, if, 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 if it was the, the other scenario, that would certainly make the, the gospel into a law, essentially, or a means of God vindicating well, his character, which is the way that Wesley, actually, but. Yeah, because it runs into issue um, for people that have never heard the gospel, right? Because they're not rejecting something that's been presented to them. So are they dying? Um, is God's wrath being poured upon them for their, their personal sin? Or, like, it, it has to be that it's being poured on them for the personal sin, and yet that was actually atoned for at the cross. So you yeah. run into issues that way. But that might not have actually been his position, so I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I don't think it was, but yeah, it certainly would have been in and there are some people who kind of end up going that way which is why you have a lot of uh inclusivists uh in some of these not his circle particularly i don't know how broad his circle is but just in general armenian sbc circles and the like like billy graham for example he went into inclusivism and i think the logic was somewhat similar even if uh well anyways uh, this isn't a podcast about billy graham so i don't want to say more um, you know, kind of along those lines about the condition that's presented there, the fact that he denies pecuniary nature of the atonement, I think, speaks to that. It wasn't a real debt that was paid at the cross. It was just, you know, the penal part was taken care of. And then if you receive it, then all those benefits of the atonement come crashing forth on you. Um, otherwise, there wasn't anything really done. And if we look at his discussion on Ephesians 2.3, and this is, um, he attempts to use Ephesians 2.3 to demonstrate that we are under God's wrath for salvation as evidence against the full payment view of salvation. He says, quote, secondly, in discussions like this, it is altogether common to point out the elect are objects of wrath until they believe, Ephesians 2.3. Not only does this mitigate against pecuniary notions of satisfaction, since the cross doesn't immediately save anyone, as would be the case with paying a creditor, it underlies it underlines the fact that a condition has to be filled in order to escape condemnation. So there's clear, explicit teaching that you can't escape condemnation. Uh, there, there is no real work done at the cross unless you believe. It, it really has no effect upon you at all. Um, so he has to deny this understanding of pecuniary uh, nature of the atonement. Um, and, and this obviously creates problems. Um, I think Romans 3.25 is very clear that there was a real satisfaction done at the cross that Christ was put forward as a propitiation, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice, 
at uh, at the cross, not anything that happened later. It's not something that um, comes into effect later. It was actually done at the cross. Um, so this is, you know, the curse of the law. Eternal wrath was really laid upon him. Galatians 3.13, that curse of the law was put upon him. All this was taken care of at the cross. Um, so while there is a sense where we are objects of God's wrath in a judicial sense, not that we're recipients of God's wrath, obviously, um, but we stand condemned under the law. Nevertheless, Christ did pay that debt that was required. But that doesn't mean that we have to receive the benefits immediately. Uh, Andrew, I think you brought this up before the, uh, you know, if you buy a car, you pay the car off in full, but the car might be in Ohio somewhere, right? And so it has yeah. to be shipped to you. You don't have the car yet, but that doesn't mean you haven't paid for that car in full. You, But you still haven't received the benefits of your payment, which is the car. You don't have it in your hands. You don't have the benefits of it yet. Um, so it can work to where you can pay something off, but not actually receive the benefits of it yet. And also... Yeah. Go in the opposite direction in redemptive history. If you look at the Old Testament uh, saints, they believed in the promise of Christ that was come. Like Abraham believed in the promise, you know, in the Abrahamic covenant, he believed that, uh, you know, he would have this multitude of people. The promise essentially was the gospel in a veiled form. And the scripture in, in Genesis 15 says that he believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. But Christ hadn't died in time yet, right? But the benefits of it were applied to him, even though the work itself had not been uh, accomplished. Um, so this is kind of working in reverse, I guess. But the point yeah. is you don't need uh, to receive the benefits of a particular payment uh, immediately. Um, and he uses the example of paying a creditor. Um, but and that's one example where that might be the case, but it's not an absolute example. It doesn't necessarily work in every situation. Yeah, and and I think in the car example, the important thing to to highlight is that when you, when the car is paid for, you have a legal right to that car, right? Like the car owner must give you that car after you've paid for it, and that's how we should understand the reconciliation that happens at the cross. Yes, we might not have personally received his righteousness or forgiveness by faith yet, and so judicially we're under the law because we're standing outside of Christ, not having been united to him by faith, yet because he legally represented us as our covenant head and imputed our trespasses to him, we have a, uh, God has has, has uh, created a legal right for us to receive that. And, we, and, and that not only allows us to receive it, it demands that we will receive it on the basis of justice. Because it's been paid for, we must actually receive the, the thing that was paid for, which is eternal life um, with our Lord. So that's that's important to to bring out there, I think. Yep. And we can go after the uh, the, the car salesman if he doesn't get me my car when he said he was because he's yeah. legally obligated to get it for me. And ultimately, like if we got to the judgment seat and hadn't received it, like there won't be any sins to for which God to pour out wrath on us. At, at that at that point right because they were abolished so like like you said dan we're not the recipients of god's wrath we're under we're, we're objects of his wrath but we're but the place where we become a recipient in it is in the eternal lake of fire uh but we won't have grounds to be cast there because christ has made the payment for those sins and therefore uh the standards of justice themselves require us to receive the benefits of that payment and prevent us from being cast into the lake of fire Amen. Sean, anything to add? Nope. That was good. All right. All right.
Um, and then uh, Andrew's going to talk about some stuff from church history, but I got one more quote here from the book um, before we start to wrap things up with that. Uh, page 124, um, he this is an explicit statement that he gives about the pecuniary nature of the atonement. He says, Christ's satisfaction is penal in nature, not pecuniary. And the difference between these two is penetratingly significant, end quote. Um, so pecuniary means uh, that, you know, talking about owing a debt. So he does not believe that, um, you know, the, the atonement is anyway paying a debt. Um, but I think Colossians 2.14 is explicit in this. A quote by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is interesting, too, because this isn't even a debt that comes into effect upon belief. It's still talking about the in time uh, reality of the cross that these things took place. It was at the cross. It was nailed to the cross. The debt was taken care of and it is finished. Um, so you even see Paul dealing with these things in explicit terms. Um, but in order for Austin to make his position work, these things have to be, uh, these categories have to be ignored. Yeah. All right. And anything I, to add? Yeah. The, the Lord very expressly uh, signifies sin under the name of debt in the Lord's prayer. It says, forgive us. Yeah. Debt. We owe a debt to God in, in that we've broken his law. So we're obligated to pay um, whatever that is through eternal punishment, which is why. Mm -hmm. Somebody had to take our place that was God and man that could satisfy those demands. Yeah, the very nature of the term ransom implies that you're, it's, it's a payment of sorts. So, like, it's it's frustrating that all these things are just, like, just swiped right under the rug, even though Scripture plainly suggests that the atonement has a pecuniary aspect. And, and not only that, the penal aspect is impossible without the pecuniary aspect, as far as I'm concerned, for the very reason we already talked about. God couldn't condemn christ without those sins being laid upon him so you can't have that without the real uh transfer of sin to him uh the imputation of sin to him and then of course we receive his righteousness accordingly i'd also make mincemeat of the imputation of adam's guilt to his descendants too i might add if you if you if you get rid of that concept of imputation i don't see how you could really have us guilty in the way that scripture uh defines us because because then again, if you can't really transfer the sin itself, then how are we liable for uh, what Adam did? So it goes both ways. Um, but anyways, uh, I suppose we can move on to the uh, church history section now, unless, Sean, you wanted to add anything? Or... Nope, I'm good. Go on ahead. Cool. Anyways, um, so we, we do take church history very seriously here. And so I didn't want anybody to be phased by the assertion in the book that his view represents the universal view. He, he calls it that in that our view is uh, what those strange 17th century reform scholastics came up with. That's not the case at all. Uh, far from it. Uh, John Owen, in his work, Death of Death in the Death of Christ, uh, catalogs in his appendix, uh, the fact that others have been teaching this in the early church and that the church has known that Christ gave himself for only the elect from the beginning. And one of the earliest post-apostolical works, uh, I'm not reading from all of John Owen, by the way, these are just a few snippets from him that he, that he gives us because uh, he already did a lot of the legwork for us, thankfully. Um, but this is from the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is probably written mid second century. And it says the following in response to those who thought that, uh, that the disciples might forsake Christ to worship the remains of the martyr Polycarp. Quote, neither can we ever forsake Christ, him who suffered for the salvation of the world of them that are saved, 
nor worship any other, end quote. Notice that language there, of the world of them that are saved. He suffered for the salvation of the world of them that are saved. Um, we Can I say something things. real quick? Yeah. Yeah, um, just about Polycarp. So that's interesting that he uses that terminology because it's very similar to John's terminology in John 3. And Polycarp was thought to maybe have some personal ties with the Apostle John. Yeah, so it right. would make sense why he would use similar language um, that John used in his gospel. Yeah, so to clarify, this is the writers of his martyrdom, so it's not Polycarp himself, but it are people who would know Polycarp. So I think the point right, right. Still, still goes uh, that this is language that he gets from John, ultimately. But yeah, I think we see two things here. One, Christ uh, did not suffer for all, but only for uh, the world of them that are saved. In other words, the elect. But besides this, it also indicates that the hermeneutical grid so commonly used later by men such as Ambrose and Augustine was already used in this early date. The elect in themselves are understood to comprise a world in themselves. And this is how early Christians would often make sense of the fact that we see passages where the world is portrayed as evil and against God and other passages where the world is the object of God's love. Uh, like I said, Ambrose is a good example of this, and he explains it as follows. Well, this is Ambrose. The people of God have its own fullness. In the elect and foreknown, distinguished from the generality of all, there is accounted a certain special universality, so that the whole world seems to be delivered from the whole world, and all men to be taken out of all men. So that's from his Defide ad Gratianum. Um, so there's really no reason to speak in this way unless you've embraced the biblical truth that the passages which speak about the world are only are, are sometimes only speaking of the elect, like John 3.16. And you mentioned already, Dan, that Polycarp was a disciple of John, so this makes sense. Uh, according to the writers of Polycarp's martyrdom, Christ suffered for that world, not the other. So he 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 suffered for the universality of God's elect, which uh, comprises all tribes, tongues, and nations, and thus the world of itself, but not of the world of the unredeemed. And that hermeneutic would be carried on centuries later. Uh, Owen lists another of, uh, a, a number of other ancient witnesses, but I'll share just one more. The following is from Prosper of Aquitaine, who was a disciple of Augustine writing about the year 440 AD. And he says, quote, Doubtless, the propriety of redemption is theirs, from whom the prince of the world is cast out. The death of Christ is not to be so laid out for humankind that they should also belong unto his redemption, who were not to be regenerated. End quote. So very clear distinction um, between the re regeneration, justification, and redemption, and that redemption was given only for those who were to be regenerated. So words aren't uh, much clearer than that. Uh, but finally, I want to quote somebody else who John Owen doesn't bring up. I don't even know if his writings were available at the time. Uh, but namely, uh, Gottschalk of Orbes here. Uh, you can see this book. This is wonderful translation of his uh, works by uh, Victor uh, Genki and Francis uh, Dumerlach. And um, I think he's one of the clearest teachers on this subject who who wrote in church history. He wrote in about he wrote in the ninth century, so centuries before uh, the time of the Reformation. So first, I want to read from a list of syllogisms uh, that he gives to illustrate his view. <clears throat> so the, here's the premise of the syllogism. 
But God command, commends his love for us because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more now, having been justified in his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. Romans 5, 8 through 9. I think we remember we read that earlier. Therefore, if Christ died even for the reprobate, then the reprobate too, having been justified in his blood, will be saved from wrath through him. And here's minor premise. But uh, the, the, the reprobate will not be saved from wrath through him. Conclusion. Therefore, Christ did not die for the reprobate. Uh, the next one. For if we were, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? Romans five ten. Therefore, if the reprobate were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, they will be saved by His life, but they will not be saved by His life. Therefore, the reprobate were not reconciled to God through the death of His Son. And I really wanted to show those syllogism because it was the same text that we were dealing with earlier. We're not doing anything new. This has been recognized by the Orthodox for a long time. And uh, at least one more thing I want to uh, quickly uh, quickly give here. This is uh, from another one of his uh, writings here. Um, let's see. As so. so this is in a section entitled against those who say that the reprobate were redeemed. And he says, as someone faithful to God, readily pay attention to what I say. The apostle says of the Holy Spirit, the spirit himself pleads for us with inexpressible groanings. But he who searches hearts knows what the spirit desires because he pleads according to God for the saints. Romans 8, 26 to 27. That is for the elect about him. That is, he adds in what follows. Quote, for we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who have been called to be holy according to his plan. End quote, Romans 8, 28. And at times, Paul says about the Son, who also intercedes for us, Romans 8, 34. That is, for the elect. For he, of course, in no way intercedes for the reprobate, since he said to his father, I do not pray for the world, John 17, 9. Therefore, since the Holy Spirit pleads and the Son prays and intercedes for the saints, who but someone most wicked, would dare say that one of them can perish perpetually, since the will of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit is always one, and since the Apostle says in the middle of the same chapter about the Father, if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. For that God did not suffer for the baptized reprobate is clearly seen from the fact that the devil conquers them and subjects them to himself. And for this reason, there follow the words of those chosen for the kingdom concerning God and the Father. He did not spare even his own son, but handed him over for us all, Romans 8.32. The apostle says elsewhere about them, for God did not appoint us to wrath, for, but for the obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us in order that we, excuse me, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him, 1 Thessalonians 5.9-10. This is the fruit of Christ's cross. Let the enemies of Christ's cross blush for shame, and fall silent. The words don't get clearer than that. He was a very fierce defender of particular redemption. And you understand that our regeneration, our justification, our salvation is all the effectual and infallible fruit of what Christ has done for us on the cross, and that it's wicked and impious to even suggest that Christ could have died for someone, could have laid their sins on his account, and that they would nevertheless face eternal hellfire. Christ saves all of his sheep, and he prays for them, he intercedes for them, and he secures them in himself. Amen.
Amen. Now, Andrew, I don't recall um, in terms of Brown's historical sources, does he quote any church fathers? I, I don't recall from reading. I don't remember church fathers. It was mostly uh, early reformed men and a few others afterwards. Um, Andrew Fuller, for example, I believe, and um, uh, R.L. Dabney. So there are definitely a few after the early Reformation. I hope I didn't imply that there were none after that time, but it's just the consensus became in the 17th century uh, in favor of particular redemption. So to clarify that, if in case I wasn't clear in my words earlier. Sorry, Sean, were you about to say something? Yeah, I was, um, but I don't remember what it was now. Oh, uh, um, just that uh, the point of his book was he was trying to prove that this is uh, or at least one of the points of the book is that he's trying to prove that this is within the reform scheme, uh, reform stream. Like this is still a uh, a view within the broader reformdom. So it, it makes sense that he wouldn't necessarily be going to the uh, the early church period. But yeah, yeah, that's fair. All right, brothers, I have I have one last little section here. Uh, if uh, you guys are ready for it, or yep, go right ahead. All right, cool. So just one last thing to stress the importance of the subject. Um, hopefully over the course of the episode, you've seen that we're doing more than dotting our theological I's and crossing our T's here. If we push the implications of the hypothetical universalism to their conclusions, it undermines the very nature of what happened at the cross to the undermining of the glory of Christ's work on the cross and to the impairing of the rest and comfort of the saints. The fullness of Christ's effectual penal substitutionary atonement is jeopardized by the hypothetical universalist scheme, and it necessitates that some aspect of it somewhere has to give. Either the substitution must be undermined, where there's no real imputation of sins to the Lamb, as we saw, or else its effectual nature would have to be undermined, implying Christ did not sufficiently bear them to fully atone and abolish them and that the Father was not fully pleased yet with what he saw, requiring us to do our part to make it good enough. It is no longer true that God saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. Isaiah 53, 11. This strikes at the very heart of redemption and the full and perfect work of Jesus Christ. If we're Christians and we truly cherish his work as our very life, our very breath, how can we even begin to think of giving an inch of this our life in peace for something as frivolous and as speculative as a so-called grounding objection? The doctrine of the hypotheticals does not give us the full glory of the gospel of Christ. At best, as articulated by Brown, it gives us escape from hell, escape from the penalty, but no real imputation and annihilation of our sin at Calvary. If we have been made to feel the loathsomeness of our sin, its defilement and the great displeasure of God our Father towards it, we will not be satisfied to simply escape its due. We want it wiped out, abolished, finished, and removed as far from us as the East is to the West. And that is precisely what Jesus Christ in the gospel promises all who come to him, all whom he has called to himself before the foundation of the world, the Father choosing us in him and sending him in time to make an end for sin for us. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Secondly, the view of the hypotheticals forces the mind off the work of Christ and onto ourselves. This is key for the peace of your soul, I believe. The sinner cannot, under his view, cast himself nakedly upon Christ's work for us and rely solely on his cross work for his own redemption 
Because even though Christ may have indeed bore his sins, under Brown's view, that's not good enough. He bore everyone's sins, according to Brown, and there's no objective historical work that sinners can look at that separates the elect from the non-elect except their own act of faith. That is the only thing in time, the only thing in history that separates the elect from the non-elect is their own act of faith. Thus, it demands an inward bent, a navel-gazing, in order to truly trust that Christ's work on their behalf was good enough to get the job done, because in and of itself it isn't. Thus, faith must now be divided between casting itself upon two objects of faith, its proper object, which is the work of Christ, but also to itself. But a faith that's divided will have difficulty standing. Our personal exercise of faith is always weak and imperfect. It's never good enough to be an anchor for the soul in and of itself. Faith is strongest and most healthy when it looks off of itself and its own exercising and instead simply exercises, looking squarely upon Jesus Christ, faith's object. When we embrace the biblical gospel, we can read of the bloody crucifixion and by faith see our sins there and rest that it is indeed finished. The Spirit having taught us that our sins were laid upon him, we can look nakedly at the cross without a second thought about our own weakness in receiving him. We simply receive and thus rejoice with great confidence, seeing his work, knowing that the Father cannot help but be satisfied at such a price. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Amen. 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 And that's the gospel message right there. And you know, if you're listening today and you have not embraced this gospel for yourself, we plead with you to embrace it. Believe in this gospel for your as applying to yourself. Believe that this was done for you um, by faith and faith alone, not looking to your own works, but resting in what Christ has done. Um, and you will be saved. Uh, this you will receive the righteousness of Christ. Um and also the benefits of uh, his death as well. So believe in him today if, if you do not believe in him yet. We, we plead with you to do so. Well, we thank you for joining us today. This is one of our, our mega episodes, um, but we think it was necessary to you know, give justice to um, you know, the material and, and discussing Brown's book. Um, so thanks for sticking with us. Um, please share this uh, around with, with those who might be struggling with limited atonement or who may be on the opposite side of the issue. Um, we hope this is helpful for discussion and provides clarity in the issue. But thank you for joining us today, and everyone have a great Lord's Day tomorrow. God bless you all.